Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. It's good to see you. Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Where that's where we're going to be this morning. My wife and I, our family, we used to have chickens. Now, that doesn't mean we ate them. It just means that I got sick of waking up every morning and feeding them. We found a different home for our chickens. But it was one of those things during COVID, and we were, you know, we had all this extra time, so I decided to build a chicken coop, and then we got chickens, and and uh, we got five chickens, and and uh, we named them all after characters of Napoleon Dynamite. And so we had we had Kip and LaFonda and Napoleon and Deb, and the fifth one died, and I can't remember his name. But 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 we had we had we had four chickens, and we had you know it was it was wonderful experience. Um, you know, free eggs, and and that, now nowadays that's that's saying something, right? Uh, but we, we enjoyed our chickens, and, there, and, and you know, so when, I, when we got chickens, I took this little area in our yard, and I put a fence around it, and, and got a little wiring to go around, then I got a net over it, and I thought I, you know, I had this plan of how I was going to enclose all these chickens, and, but we had this one chicken, she's a black astrolorp, and, and her name was Deb, like I said, Deb, and Deb would always find a way out. I don't know what it was. I mean, I thought I had everything set up. And, and we, you know, we, I'd be coming home from, from work one day, and Deb would be right there in the front yard just waiting for us. Or we'd be eating dinner at our dinner table, and we'd look out on our back porch, and there's Deb just kind of looking in like, what's going on in there? And so whenever she would get out, I'd go inside the coop and be like, all right, you've got to figure out where this, where's she getting out? And she was amazing at finding the weak link in my plan. And when, when I think about what we're talking about with this series, Legacy Planning, you know, when you have a plan, your plan is only as good as your weakest link. And if you've got a hole in your plan, it's going to be exposed very quickly when you go to implement that plan. And as we read the last couple of weeks, as we've been studying this passage, you know, this whole idea of, of God, uh, you know, speaking through Moses to the people, and the people are about to enter into the promised land. And this, is, this vision we talked about last week that God has for his people. He's like, man, I want you to live long in the land, and I want, you, I want it to go well with you, and I want you to be multiplied greatly. And it's this idea that God wants to do good to his people. He wants to bless them and encourage them. And so we, had, we looked at this vision in our hearts. Are, are they captivated by the vision that God has for us? Well, next week, when Dan is going to preach, he's going to be preaching about, you know, how to implement this plan. And, and, and you know, the, the details of how to do this, how to pass on faith to the next generation. But today is, is an important passage. Because between the vision and the implementation there's this reality that, that Moses says in these three verses that if you get this wrong in the passage, it doesn't matter what you teach the next generation. And, and, and the, the whole idea that, that Moses is saying is, listen, you got to understand what God wants for you. That's the vision. Here's how you pass along. But here's what's most important. It has to be real in you. You have to love God for yourself. It's not enough just to say, yeah, I know what the right thing is, and I want the right thing for my kids. 
It's no, I've got to live this. I've got to embody. I've got to model what I want to see come out in the next generation. I think, as I mentioned two weeks ago, we have seen generation by generation for the last hundred years, you know, the, the, the percentage of people that would call themselves or identify themselves as followers of Christ, people with a biblical worldview, it keeps shrinking generation by generation. And there's a lot of factors for that. But one of the biggest factors for, that, for this reality that we're facing in our world today, the reason why Babylon is in our streets, is because I believe many people that claim to be followers of Jesus, many people that, that call themselves Christians, it's their faith is not authentic. That what, what they're doing is there's a different person that, that, you know, that looks different, talks different when you're in an environment like church compared to when you're in the home environment. And when kids grow up with a dad that there's church dad and then there's home dad. Or there's a church mom and then there's a home mom. If there are two different versions of you, the chances of you passing down your faith are going to be slim. It doesn't mean it's impossible, but the reality is that legacy requires authenticity. Legacy requires authenticity. If there's one thing I want you to remember this morning, it's that legacy requires authenticity. This is the, this is the part, yeah, we want to pass on our faith, and there's a lot of ways in which we can do that. But we'll never be able to pass on a faith if it's not real inside of us. And so that's one of the things that as we look at this passage this morning, we, that, that, this, do we get it that it's got to be authentic? Now, now, understand what I'm saying. It's not, you don't have to be perfect as parents. There's a difference between perfection and authenticity. Now, I'm about to offend some people, but, you know, Dan does it every single time that he preaches. So <laughs> I'm just going to take my turn and offend some people in this room. But, uh, I'm not a fan of Christian movies, all right? You're like, my pastor doesn't like Christian movies? Yes. And the reason why is because many times Christian movies are too perfect. They're not authentic. You know, you have a movie, a Christian movie, it's like, there's this big problem, but don't worry, everyone gets saved in the end, you know? And so, and I'm not going to name, I'm not going to name any movies and because we all know what they are, but, but you can guarantee you pop that DVD in, you know, you watch that, whatever it is, you stream it, you, it's like a Hallmark movie. You know the couple's going to get together at the end and you know the, the, the rotten guy in the movie is going to become a Christian. And so it, it's just, that's fine, but it doesn't feel authentic because you know what, there are so many times in life where the person doesn't accept Jesus. There's a lot of times when, when, you know, sickness and pain, you know, it, there's just times when evil feels like it wins the day. And it, it doesn't mean that it wins the ultimate day, but it does mean this, that if we don't really show an authentic version of our faith, the next generation is going to pick up on that. And they can, listen, here's what I know about young people. They can smell authenticity a mile away. They can smell authenticity. And again, it doesn't mean we've got to be perfect. In fact, I think... Being honest about our imperfections is one of the most authentic things that you can do as a parent and as a leader. But we've got to have authenticity in our lives. And this passage that we're going to read today is all about how do we follow God in a way? How do we have faith that truly is authentic? So let's look again in Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
verses 4 through 6. Now, if I was to ask you, what is the most popular verse in the New Testament, what would you say? John 3, 16, all right? You guys passed the test. You're good Christians. But if you were to ask someone who is who had the Jewish faith, what is the most popular Old Testament passage? They would say the Shema. This passage right here is called the Shema because Shema is the first word in this passage here. And anyway, we talked about that word Shema two weeks ago in our sermon. But let's look what this says. This is this, is this statement right here that we're going to read this morning is a statement that if you're a good Jew, you recite this every morning when you get up and every night before you go to bed. This is foundational to their faith, and we're going to look and understand why it's so foundational. All right, let's see what it says. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Now notice, there's a couple words in here that we, we talked about, four words that are almost in all, all throughout Deuteronomy. Hear, love, keep, teach. And we see three of these words in this passage, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, you know, then, then, then Moses refers to this teaching that, that those words I'm commanding you or teaching you today should be on your heart. So this idea that, man, we're going to see these words over and over and over again. But what Moses is trying to say to these people as they're about to enter the, into the promised land is you have to have an authentic faith. You yourself, because this is, these commands are in the singular tense in the verb. So it's, it's not like you can all just decide to do this as a group. There, there's, a, there's a part of doing things as a group, but he's saying, if you want this to be passed on, it's got to be real in you. It's got to be real in you. And as you look at your own life, as you think about the influence that you're having to those around you, can you say what people see in me is an authentic faith? It doesn't mean it's perfect, but it's authentic. It's real. I show, man, if I say I love Jesus, I love Jesus. And if we're going to have an authentic faith, there's, there's three components to this authentic faith that I think we can learn from this passage. And, and all of these components are related to the response from the first word that we see in this, in this passage here to one of the, most other, the other most important word in this passage, love. Because this connection between hearing and loving is very important here. You will not love, what Moses is saying is, you will not love God as a response if you don't really know who God is and what he has done. So if we're going to have authentic faith, number one, authentic faith requires or has real adoration. Real adoration. That word love in verse 5, again, if it's a response to what is mentioned in verse 4, there's a, there's a response to the reality of who God is. This word love is a, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful Hebrew word. And, and again, one of the things we've got to remember, there are many different kinds of love that many other languages use. He, the Hebrew language has different words for love. The Greek language has different words for love. For us, in our English language, we got one word. And a lot of times when we use this word love, we use this word in the context of how I feel about something. 
But this word love is not necessarily a love that, that is all about feeling. It doesn't mean it's void of feeling. But it, what it does mean is it's something deeper. It's, it's the reality of, of my commitment and my, my attention and my affection for the object I'm giving it to. And so what Moses is saying here is, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's something about that phrase right there that should prompt the listeners to say, okay, because of who God is, I'm going to respond in love to God, to Yahweh. Now, here's what I found fascinating about this phrase, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. If you look at this passage, if you look at this verse in the Hebrew, um, there's no word is there. Now, there's no Hebrew word for is. Now, if, if for us, in our English language, the, the, to conjugate the verb to be, you know, we, have, we can go through all that things, but the Hebrews have, the Hebrew language, they have a word for was, past tense of to be, and they have a word for will be, future tense. But what they do not have is a word for the present tense, is. So what that means is if you see two words together and there's no verb, then you can, you can just assume that the word is should be planted there. So if, there's, if in Hebrew you see boy tall, you could assume that it's trying to say the boy is tall. Okay? So you get that about Hebrew? Well, there's no, there's no Hebrew word for is here. So there's only six words, hear, O Israel. That's the first two. And then the Lord, God, the Lord our God, the Lord one. What that means is there are actually four different possibilities of how you can translate this passage, depending on where you want to put is. So I've got these four possibilities on the screen. All right? The first one is, it's, which is in most of our passages, the Lord, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Another way you could say it, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You could also say it this way, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And then, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. If you notice the nuance between every single one of those. Now, here's what I found so interesting. I believe that God gave this statement purposefully this way because he wants us to understand the nuances of this phrase. Because when I, whenever you read this and you, at face value, you're saying, well, is God, is what, what's God giving this statement for? Is he just trying to let people know, listen, this, this world, there, a lot of nations out there, have, they, serve, they believe in many gods. I want you to be monotheists. Is monotheism the only thing that God cares about in this passage? Well, what I would say is that is one of the reasons why he gives this. Yes, God, is, there's only one true God. But there's two other aspects to this phrase that I believe that he wants his people to understand. And that is this, I want you to understand not just that I am one God, I want you to understand my authority, right? The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. He's above everything. And then the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, the idea of exclusivity, so yeah, it's not just about monotheism. It's not, but it's about so. It's about bigger things. About about his authority. It's about his character. It's about his nature. It's about his exclusivity. This was a phrase that God wants. I want you to meditate on this. This is important. I don't want you to skip over this. I want you to think about the significance and the nuances of this one statement, and I want you to reflect on that, and I want you to worship me.
Yesterday morning, I was at another worship service. I was at an Orthodox Jewish synagogue yesterday morning. You just might be saying, well, why did you do that, Ben? Uh, as you know, I'm going back to school, and one of my projects is, one of my assignments is, I've got to go to two different uh, religious uh, services that are outside of my faith tradition. So I reached out to, to the, one of the local synagogues, and I wanted to make sure it was an Orthodox synagogue because they actually take the Bible seriously. And I, I reached out to this rabbi, and uh, we actually had lunch this week, which is a whole other story. But we, I met him. We had a, we had a good time. We, we talked, and he knew I was coming in. And, and you know, if you're familiar with the Jewish faith, they, it's not like this. Okay, it's not like people coming in like, hey, come on in the church. We're happy to hear you. Have you here? And, and they're kind of like, um, you, we're going to do a background check on you to make sure that you are who you say you are. Very high security. And uh, they, they do not, it's not seeker or user friendly. You walk in, here's your yarmulke, and I don't know what, everything's in Hebrew. And, and it was fascinating because one of the things that they did is the first 45 minutes, all they're doing is just, they're just reading and reciting the Psalms. And uh, in different, different ways, and I'm just observing and watching this and high value on, on, on the Word of God. But one of the things that they did at the end was they recited the Shema towards the end of their worship singing time. And what they did was, in the practice of, the, of this Jewish synagogue, and as true of most Orthodox synagogues, is they're supposed to say every word in the Hebrew, and at every, in pause, to meditate, and while they do it, they take their right hand and cover their eyes. Why do they do that? They do that because they want nothing else distracting their focus on who God is. They want, they want your, their heart to be so, so captivated by the grandness, by the, by, by the transcendence of God, but also his, his love and closeness to us. Listen, if we're going to have authentic faith, it requires us to have a passion and a desire to know God, that we are seeking him. We want to know him. We are, there's this idea of joyful reverence in our hearts. When we come into these rooms and we find ourselves in environments that we truly do worship him, we're not just going through the motions. Because here's what I know. You can't fake joy. And you can't fake worship. You might be able to do it externally here and there. But authentic worship, authentic adoration, man, you can just sense it. And if we're going to pass on our faith to the next generation, we better, we better be people who truly, are, our hearts are captivated by who God is, and we are worshiping him in spirit and in truth. That's the first one. Number two, authentic faith not only has, has genuine uh, you know, adoration, but it's also authentic faith has true allegiance. Authentic faith has true allegiance. One of the, one of the, one of the nuances about this word love is that it's a love that was meant, that was always used in relationship to covenant commitments to one another. So, you know, when you made a covenant, whether it was a king to a, to a people with a treaty, or if there was a, a husband to a wife, when there was a, a legal agreement made, they would use this word to express the loyalty 
and the commitment and the allegiance to this relationship. And if we are going to be, have authentic faith, what that means is that our hearts love God in such a way to say, God, when it comes to option A, which might be whatever it is, or option B, which is you, I'm always choosing God. I'm always choosing you. You're the one I choose. You're the one I respond to. And it's got to be love. One of the things as I was studying this passage this week, uh, I was very interested in how the verb tenses were used in relationship to hear and love. Hear is in the imperative. It's a command. Hey, here, listen up. You need to hear this. It's a command that Moses is giving authoritatively. And you might think that there is actually, and when it gets to verse 5, and you shall love the Lord your God, that that's a command as well. But guess what? It's not. In fact, I'm not sure if you knew this, but nowhere in the Bible, never in the Bible, is the verb tense in the imperative for love commanded that you or I ever love God. Do you know that? Now, there's multiple times where the Bible says, hey, command, love. You love your neighbor. That's a command. Don't have an option. Okay, other places, Jesus said this, You've heard it said, love your neighbor. I tell you, you love command. You love your enemy. Oh, I don't like that, but okay. Thanks, Jesus. The other place in Scripture, Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives. Command, imperative, you got to do this. Never in the entire Bible does God command us to love him. Isn't that fascinating? It's because God wants our love for him to be genuine. He wants our love for him to be a response because of his love for us. What God wants is for us to fully understand how much he has loved us, what, how he has shown us his love. And when we are captivated by his love for us, then we will choose to love him. You will love the Lord your God. It is a future tense. It might be saying this, you might, not love God, you, you might not love God now. Your heart might not be full of love. You might not have genuine, authentic love for God. But guess what? My God's hope, God's desire for you is for you to know him, to, 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 get, to understand the fullness of what he's done for us so that we will one day understand and be like, oh, God, because of what, how you loved me, I will love you back. There, there's, there's only one way that we can ever love God is that when we take account for what we deserve or when we remember about who we were before God got a hold of our hearts. And that's, that's a powerful thing to remember. We need to constantly remember, not, not in a shameful way, not in a guilt-ridden way, but one of the things that God is, makes very clear is that we need to understand what we deserve. What you and I deserve from God is different than what we get from God when we place our faith and trust in him. What you and I deserve from God is we deserve condemnation. What you and I deserve from God, we deserve death. What you and I deserve from God, we deserve punishment. What you and I deserve from God, we deserve separation. 
But that's not what God does. What God does instead is he offers to us the fullness of his, of his presence, the fullness of his love, and he proved this to us through Jesus Christ so that he could take our sin and offer us forgiveness. They could take our condemnation and offer us freedom. And that this is what God does. He always wants to lead with love. And so that when we get to the point where we understand his love, I love what it says in 1 John 4, 19, we love him because he first loved us. Jesus said in the upper room, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And we'll never love God. We will ne- our hearts will never be full of the love of God unless we fully understand what we, the, the, the distance between what we deserve and what we get through Jesus Christ. Is your heart not captivated by that? That last song we sang, but you know, that Charles Wesley wrote, and can it be amazing love? Is your heart not gripped with that phrase? Amazing, why is it so amazing? Because we don't deserve what we get. And yet God poured out his love, his grace, his mercy, his power, his freedom, his forgiveness. It is so abundant and it's so amazing. He wants us to love him back, not because we have to, because we're so enthralled by the reality of his love. That's authentic, authenticity. That's authentic love. That, that, that kind of love makes us say, I don't know whatever the world's going to offer. I'm choosing Jesus every time. I'm choosing God. Because no matter what, what I get from that relationship or what I get from that thing, you know, you know one of the things I you do this right now, draw a little Y on, on, in your Bible, a little Y in your notes if you're taking notes. But put a little fork in the road. And, you know, what fork in the road do you always get to and you choose something else before God? It, you know, it, it might be, and, and listen, just ask your children. Have you ever, ever done, have, I'm not sure how many of you have ever done one of those 360 evaluations. They're the most frightening things in the world. What you do is you, you, you know, a lot of times you can take these self-evaluation tests and you're like, you're good, your strengths, your weaknesses. But a 360 evaluation is essentially you get six of your people, friends that know you really well. And you're like, hey, take this test for me. Tell me who I am. And you're like, man, just, just wait. For that evaluation. Really, it's, it's an amazing thing to do because you really get a chance to see what people's perceptions are of you. You know, what do they, what they really get? What do they understand? And, and there, there's a great benefit to, to that kind of test, but I wonder if your spouse or your kids or your parents or your neighbors or your coworkers gave you a 360 evaluation on your faith what would they what what kind of what kind of test results would you get and that little why that's there you know every time it's choose between sports and god sports wins every time there's there's a fork in the road and it's 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 money or god money wins you know, whatever it might be that, that whenever there's a fork in the road to that one thing god's going to get second place that's the issue of this word love here. And you can't fake that. And, over, and based on your choices, what are you showing to those people around you? That, hey, is your faith authentic? 
Do you say one thing do you, or does your life reflect something so differently? We can always tell what our allegiance is by what we choose when there's a choice to make. How do you make that choice? That's number two. We've got to have true allegiance. Lastly, authentic faith requires consistent action. Authentic faith has consistent action. One of the things, as we see, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. One of the things that came out of the conversation I had with the rabbi this week, you know, he made it very clear that they have these 613 laws, that they're very diligent and very dedicated to, fill, to, to doing those 613 laws. And we're not having a debate, but as I was meditating on, when Jesus was approached and said, Hey, what's the greatest commandment? He chose this passage right here. And for good reason. In fact, one of the things that Jesus said is, is this verse summarizes the entire law and prophets. This verse, the whole weight of the law and prophets weighs on this one verse. And the reason why I believe that God is saying that, or why Jesus said that, is because what he's saying is there, it's, it's, it's bigger than 613. When you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your might, what that means is there are certain things that aren't written down that if you love someone, you're going to do it. When it says love the God, Lord your God with all of your heart, it's, just, it's this idea that I'm not, I don't have two hearts inside of me. I don't, have two, I don't have two competing loves that my heart is fully, every square inch of my inner person and my external person, it's one and the same. It's all filled. If, if my body is, is, a, is a temple of God, every room in my heart, it says Jesus over the door. That's what it means. I'm not double-minded, not double-hearted. So, so that's what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then, and then next, love the Lord your God with all your soul. This, is, this carries the idea of your very breath. It means I'm going to love God even if it costs me my life. If it costs me my life, it takes my breath away and kills me, I'm going to love, I'm going to love God. So it's this extent of what I'm willing to sacrifice for him. How much I love him. And then lastly, here's this last word just I just had to chuckle at this one. I, this is this is fat, this is really interesting. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. You got to get that, okay? Inner person, fullness. Love the God, Lord your God with all your soul, your your breath, the lo- breath of life. I get that. But the last word, love the Lord your God with all your might. Now, that was, that's an interesting word in the Hebrew. It's not a noun. It's an adverb. Okay? And it's the adverb for exceedingly or very. It's the word you put before a word to describe action or activity. So, so it's if I was going to be literal, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your very. What, what, what is he saying? I, I think, again, this is bigger than 613. What he's saying is when you're doing something, go all out. Do it from every, from all of your strength that you are just doing it in a very kind of way. But let it be very. That let it pour out of you. You just can't wait to do it because it just flows out of you. I, I played basketball in high school. I went to a Christian school, and that shouldn't be that impressive because, you know, 
growing up in a Christian school, they, they had one, if you could fog up a mirror, you were on the basketball team, all right? And so they put a little mirror under your nose, and if I fog your eye, you're on the team. And so I was on the basketball team, and, and, and there was a lot of different people on the team that were uh, in different skill levels, right? And there's this one guy on the team, his name was Dale Noldy. I love Dale. Uh, but D- Dale was a year older than me. He, he was really quick. Dale was really fast, uh, you know, kind of athletic, but not a lot of basketball skill. He's one of these guys that when you played basketball with, any of you basketball players, they're just super aggressive and gritty and just annoy you. You know what I'm talking about? That was Dale. And Dale, you know, our coach had a role for Dale on our team. And he would tell, you know, obviously Dale never started, but, but if, there was a, if there was a player on the other team that was a pretty good you know, athlete, pretty, pretty good scorer, pretty good shooter, he'd say, Dale, get on number seven and don't let him take a shot. And Dale would run out there and just, just drive that guy crazy. He'd be on his face like, <laughs> no clue on how to play basketball, but he's just out there just aggravating this guy. I saw Dale foul out of a game in two minutes one time. If you don't know, that's really hard to do. But Dale did it. Because when Dale was out there, he was so very. He just was out. He, was just, he played defense very hard. And he would run very fast. And he was very, I mean, just, he was very. And, and I just love, I, I think that's the perfect picture of what God is anticipating. He says, I want you to love me with your very, what he's saying is, I got something I have for you to do. There's a mission I have for you in your life. There, there's a role, there's a, there's a way in which I want you to represent me to these people. And I don't want you to do it, I don't want you to do it casually. I don't want you to just you know, do it half-hearted. I want, you to, I, want to be, I want you to be all in. Do it with your very. Yeah, we live in a culture, and I don't know if this is a cultural thing. I don't know if this is a human being thing. But what I've noticed is, for most of us, we always want our feelings to come prior to our behavior. You know, if I, if I don't feel like it, I'm not going to do it. And so, and so we, we always lead with our feelings. And if you think about what choices you make during the day, listen, if you've if you, you're never going to feel like eating healthy. You're never going to feel like working out. You're not going to feel like reading your Bible unless you're the Terminator and a robot and like, I can't help you there, right? But most people, we have these feelings and so it's just kind of like, I just don't feel, I mean, it's just kind of, Ben, it was just kind of rainy and cloudy outside. I didn't feel like singing, Right? I didn't feel like it. We just, we let our feelings lead us. Listen, that's not, it's not the way God wants us to live our lives. Don't let your feelings dictate your decisions. Choose to live very and your feelings will follow. I promise you that. But God has this expectation. I want it to be real. I want your actions to be consistent you know, there, there was never, there was never a, a low switch with Dale when he was on the court. And I just pray to God there's no low switch for us when it comes to our faith. We're consistently following him. 
Do you live in such a way that you go all out for God, not, not just going through the motions, but behind everything you do, there's a purpose, there's a heart. Verse 6, Moses says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Moses is saying it's got to be real. It's got to be authentic. You can't, fake, you can't fake faith if you're going to pass it on to the next generation. I, again, I don't know where you're at today. Maybe, maybe you're a you know, young couple in this room. You've never had kids yet, but let me just challenge you. Now, now is the time to start taking your faith seriously so that when you bring kids in the world, you're bringing into a home that's Christian, not just in name, but in reality. Maybe you have kids in your home right now and you say, Ben, I've been inconsistent. There's been two versions of me. There's been a church dad and a home dad or a church mom and a home mom. And I've got to make some changes. Maybe you're sitting there this, this morning and you're a grandparent. You look back and say, man, Ben, I, I really made some mistakes. I was not consistent. I was not authentic in my faith. And my kids see it. My kids saw something. But listen, it's never too late. It's never too late to be authentic. You might be a young person in this room. You're not even married yet. And what I would say is this, if you want to have a spouse, if you want to have a home, a Christian home with children, next generation, that are going to follow Jesus, find someone that's very, so important. No matter where you are today, the success of passing on faith to that person, to, the next, to that next generation, it's got to be authentic. Three questions. Number one, what kind of faith are you modeling? What's the kind of faith that you're modeling? doesn't have to be perfect faith, but is it authentic faith? Number two, how strong is your allegiance? One of the things I'd love for you to do, where, where you drew that why in your notes, in, you know, what, would you, what would you say when there's a fork in the road and I've got to choose either God or this, what is that for you? Write it down. What's the Holy Spirit telling you what that is? Where does your true allegiance lie? Number three, how consistent are your actions? Do you have to wait for the feelings to show up or do you let the feelings follow your behavior? You know, a couple weeks ago, I closed with this story in Judges 2 verse 10. And I read this passage of scripture, which I said was one of the, saddest verses in all the Bible, Judges chapter 2, verse 10. It's about that generation that did not pass on the faith to their children. When I was in college, I was reading through the Bible, and, and I came across this story. It's not a very well-known story, but it's the story of the Rechabites. It's in Jeremiah chapter 35, and, and the Rechabites was this family that, that uh, just a, it's a story that really captivated my heart. And the Rechabites were this clan, a group of people in, in Judah. It was right around the time of, of Nebuchadnezzar's great siege and, and right before the walls got torn down and, and the people got taken into exile. Jeremiah caused this family to sit into this room and they're all at this table. And Jeremiah pours out cups of wine to every single person in this family and sets this, these, this, these cups of wine before the family. And he says, take this and drink. And every single one says, we're not going to drink. 
And, it says, why? and Jeremiah says, why not? And the leader of the family said, because we, we made a vow. Our, our forefather, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, said, that they made a vow that said we would never plant a vineyard or drink from the vine, and we would always live in tents for the rest of the generations of our family. So since that time, we've made that vow. And the only reason why we're in here into a city with walls is because Nebuchadnezzar is outside the walls and we can't live out there. But we will not, we will not betray the vow that our forefather made. Now, you know, based on my study, that, that time period from the vow of that father to where they were sitting in that time period, anywhere between five and 300 years, which is unbelievable. I mean, you would have thought there would have been one guy along the, you know, 300 years, like, you know, I'm, I'm bringing some wine, right? And they stay committed. And, and, and as Jeremiah, as they're responding to Jeremiah, God tells Jeremiah, that, oh, that my children would have been that faithful to me. And he gives a promise to that family of Rechabites. He says, for as long as, you know, long as long as time goes by, there will never cease to be a, a man that will stand before me that will be from your family. What an amazing promise. Now, as I as I read that story as a young man, my heart was captivated. That that's the kind of legacy I want for me, for my family, for my lineage. I, I pray for the lineage of my household that they would be followers of Jesus. And I know there's no guarantee that, you know, there's no, there's no equation, there's no scientific method to get your kids to turn out right. I, I get that. But I do know this. As long as I'm breathing the breath of life, I want to be the type of person that models the kind of faith that my kids can point to and say, that's what a Christian looks like. That's what a Christian looks like. Is that what you're doing? Is that your heart? That's what God wants for planning a legacy for the future.